0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me once again to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4. <clears throat> Judges chapter 4. We return this morning to what is, oh happy day, the darkest book in the Old Testament. An, an account, a historical account that records. Really, the depths of darkness possible, even for God's people. And I told you at the beginning of this study, as we first opened this book, that uh, I had those close to me saying, Nate, what were you thinking? And I confess that I have asked that of myself a couple times, and particularly this week. What were you thinking? Well, what I was thinking was, this is God's word, and it's profitable. All of it, even the messiness of Judges, though it has no doubt proved to be a challenge. But I think in showing us the depths of which we can fall, Judges is also pointing us to the heights of who God is and to the glory of the salvation that He has provided for those who have turned to Him. For those who love him, and hopefully I have made that abundantly clear because that's been the prize, the promises and the encouragement of this book amidst the warnings and the exhortations. Today, before I jump into reading the passage before us, today we jump into one of uh, the passages that, that, uh, that stars one of the marquee names in the book of Judges. Her name is Deborah. And she's the fourth judge in this history of Israel fo- following uh, the honorable Ophniel, the elusive Ehud, the smashing Shamgar, and now we come to Deborah. You'll notice in your bulletin that it says that we're covering chapters 4 and 5. This is kind of true. Uh, we're not going to be reading all of chapter 5. You see only chapter 4 is in your insert, but we're going to be referring to chapter 5, and the reason is because chapter 4 and 5, they overlap heavily. Chapter 4 is history. It's the earthly perspective. Chapter 5 is poetry. It's what happens in chapter 4, but it's from a theological, from a spiritual perspective. And so rather than take these two things apart, we're going to kind of mush them together And look at them as one. But we'll just read Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. You see it before you. You have it in the insert in your bulletin. If you would stand for the reading of God's word out of honor, and we will jump in. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 24. Listen as I read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of the army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth-Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years." Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipodeth, was judging Israel at that time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoim, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, "'Has not the Lord?' The God of Israel commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go and going, excuse me. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoim, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, And the men who are with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, and he said, and she said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord.' turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So she turned aside to, so he turned aside to her in the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if a man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, "'Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking.' So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead and the tent peg in his temple." So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. be Be seated. Movie sequels are hardly ever the match for the beginning of the story. Best example of this is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York City. I mean Home Alone is great. It was one of the great ones. It's our holiday favorite in the Hitchcock house, but Home Alone 2 There was a Home Alone 3, you know. There was a Home Alone 4. Home Alone 4, Taking Back the House was the subtitle of that one. There actually was a Home Alone 5. It's called Home Alone 5, The Holiday Heist. You didn't know that, did you? Sequels are never as good as the original. Some of the characters might remain, the storyline might be familiar, but it's always a step down, or usually it's a step down. Here we go again with God's people. Since the days of Othniel, the honorable judge, things just get worse. Every iteration gets a little worse when the constraints of sin are removed, sin thrives. And there's no doubt in this passage that we come to in Judges chapter 4, there are some bright spots here, and we're going to talk about the bright spots. We'll talk about Deborah and Barak and Jael, but ultimately, this ultimately isn't about them. I just want to hit the pause button for a moment, And remind us that this ultimately is about the salvation of the sovereign God of history. This is about a covenant Lord, the covenant God who has bound himself to his people and his is the victory and his is the deliverance and therefore it is he that gets all the glory. His grace outshines all the rebellion that we see over and over again in every iteration, in every sequel in the book of Judges. It's his grace that leaves us dumbfounded. God is faithful. He will save. He will send deliverance. And of course, ultimately, this book points us way, way beyond to the book. Excuse me, to the person of Jesus. And I was thinking this week about Jesus walking on the Emmaus road and and speaking about the book of Judges and how these hundreds of years were about Him. That's the point of every passage in this entire book. But of course, I'm not preaching the same sermon every week that we gather. No, I recognize that as God's word is rich and full and layered, that there are important secondary truths that are built around that one truth that undergirds all of the book of Judges. These characters, their triumphs, their failures, they teach us and they remind us of things about the life of faith. It's what we've been singing about. It's what we've been reading about. In fact, one of the figures today finds himself in in the hall of faith. That famous passage in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read a verse in a little bit. The stories that we find here, this story finds gives us so much life, contains so much life to help us remember. And so once again, we are going to hone in this morning on just two truths that I want us to think about from this account, Judges chapter 4 and then bleeding over into Judges chapter 5. We're going to spend most of our time on the first point, and it's this. God uses strong faith, weak faith, and unknown faith. God uses strong faith, weak faith, and unknown faith. As we try to sum up this story, you might say a judge, a general, and an ordinary wife. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. A judge, a a general, and an ordinary wife walk into a bar. Three very different characters used by God in very different ways to accomplish one united purpose, God's holy will. And one of the things I think unites these three people that we're going to look at today, Deborah, Barak, and JL, is their faith. Their faith or their lack of faith. What I mean by faith is their willingness to believe and respond uh, respond to and act upon God's Word in the world. Their story, as recounted for us here, as applied to our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit then, is a challenge and a comfort, I hope, to our own faith, to our own life of faith. And so I want to rehash the story and think more about this issue of faith as we do. Jumping back into Judges chapter 4, Yahweh the Lord has once again sold, there's that word again, he sold his people into the hands of their enemies. And this time, Jabin, the king of Canaan, is the primary benefactor. And one word is used to describe Jabin's rule over the people of Israel it's the word cruel. For 20 years he dealt cruelly with them, yet it took them 20 years now to come to their senses, to cry out to Yahweh, the God of their fathers, to once again deliver them from their enemies and from themselves. And Yahweh is at the ready and he responds and who does he respond with this time? He responds in the person of Deborah. Now Deborah is Deborah is a woman obviously. She's a mother in a man's world, we might say. And I use that word mother because that's how she describes herself in chapter 5, verse 7, the song that she sings after God does his work and it's a mother that exact is exactly what Israel needs the bible calls her a prophetess she is therefore someone who is known throughout Israel as one who speaks the very words of God with wisdom with boldness with clarity and she's described as judging and here we come to kind of our traditional understanding of what a judge is I've told you all along when you think of a judge don't think of a settling disputes don't think of a courtroom think of a military ruler think of a deliverer well now when we get to Deborah suddenly all that goes out the window Deborah is a true judge and her courtroom is the palm tree of Deborah Right? She sits under it and she settles disputes and she has this reputation for being fair and wise and helping God's people. One of the things I want us to recognize right off the bat with Deborah, right off the bat with this scene of her holding court under the palm tree, is that these things are not necessarily a sign of the times, Deborah being a prophetess, Deborah judging under the palm tree, is not the depths to which God's people have fallen. No, this is Deborah using her God-given gifts as a woman to do what God has called her to do. As women before her have done, as women after her will do. Woe to those who say then that this is simply a sign of the darkness and women should be seen and not heard. No. Deborah is a woman of strength, a woman of wisdom, a woman of faith, a woman of obedience to God's Word, and God is delighted to use the strength of her faith. But as we move into verse 6 of chapter 4, What we just read, as we move into verse 6, here is where the abnormality of the times, the dark days of the judges begin to show itself. How? Deborah must prompt and lead weak men in order to obey God's word. And she shouldn't have to do that. And that brings us to the next significant character, a man struggling to believe. His name is Barak. His name means lightning, but I assure you, he is not moving. (laughs) And can you blame him? Can you blame Barak? King Jabin has this henchman, our text tells us. The henchman is Sisera, verse 2, and Sisera leads 900 chariots of iron. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot to us, but in this day and age, 900 chariots of iron was a significant technological advancement. This was ground superiority in the days of Judges. 900 iron chariots barreling full speed at 10,000 people without heavy weaponry. Let's just say the odds were in Sisera's favor, and Barak knew it. But the circumstances that Barak sees around him, they shouldn't affect him. They shouldn't rule him. And so Deborah says, has not the Lord commanded you? Right. This is Deborah's call to Barak, to believe God's promise, to trust and to obey. And so it's Deborah who calls, it's Deborah who commissions, it's Deborah who assures God's man. Verse 7, the Lord will do this, Barak. But what does the story say? Barak needs more. He wants Deborah more to accompany with him. No, more than that, he won't go if Deborah doesn't come with him. He makes an ultimatum. And and we ask, why? Why would you do this? Well, wouldn't you want this woman with you? (laughs) A woman of strength? A woman who has the words of God in her mouth? A woman who obviously has great leadership? Well, Barak believes. I really do Believe that Barak believes, but his, like ours, is a flawed faith. It's a weak faith. But it's a flawed faith that not only God is pleased to use, but God actually honors. Listen to Samuel's words in 1 Samuel when he, Samuel, recounts this period of, of God's story, of, of the life of God's people. And the Lord sent Jerob Baal, that's Gideon's new name, which we will get to in a couple weeks. And the Lord sent Jerob Baal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And then the writer of the Hebrews in the hall of faith after recounting the likes of Abraham and Moses, these pillars in Israel, and Hebrews eleven thirty two says, "And what more shall I say? For time would fail to fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness." became mighty in war. And there it is. There it is. Hear it and believe it. God uses the strong like Deborah, but he also uses the weak like Barak, like me. His strength is shown in our weakness. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be good news. But jumping back to our story, Deborah, Deborah will go with him. She agrees, but there will be a cost, right? The cost will be the glory will not go to Barak, but to a woman. And at this point in the story, we are presumably thinking, of course, that that's Deborah, that Deborah is going to be the one who gets glory. And that brings us all the way through verse 10. Barak is leading On the prompting of Deborah, 10,000 are with him at the ready. Deborah is alongside of him. And then we come to verse 11, which if you listen closely as I read this passage, verse 11 seems out of place. There's this interlude in the action to introduce Heber the Kenite. But it's an introduction that's about to become important later. And so the writer introduces it. And then verse 12 returns us to the action. Israel is perched high on Mount Tabor overlooking the Kidron Valley. Sisera and his chariots are in the valley. They're ready to bowl over anyone who confronts them along the river. The stage is set. This is going to be ugly. General lightning, let's just call him that. General Barak, Barak, he needs a miracle, and the god of the storm gives it to him. No, this isn't Baal. Though Baal was the Canaanite god of storm, no, this is Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. Flip over with me Chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. From heaven the stars fought, and from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. What is Deborah describing there in the song? It's something we didn't learn about in the history. It's the fact that Yahweh... The true God of the storm sends a literal storm. He sends unseasonable rain that swells the river, that creates flash flooding, that neutralizes Sisera's army, wheels stuck in the mud. They are now sitting ducks. And you know that scene in Lion King when Simba's at the bottom of the ravine and it's right before Mufasa dies and Scar's telling him to stay there. And then the wildebeest come down into the ravine. And that's what I picture as God's people come down from Mount Tabor with Sisera's army stuck. stuck in the mud, literally powerless to do anything. And by God's hand, his people overtake his enemies. What a scene. What a scene. God is fighting for his people. Indeed, it's a rout, but it's a rout of Sisera, not of Barak. Deborah was right. And God used the strong faith of Deborah the weak faith of Barak. But the story isn't over. In fact, at this point in Judges chapter 4, it's like everything slows down. One lone enemy, a brutal one, who dealt cruelly with God's people for 20 years. He is on the run, verse 17, and he flees to the man introduced earlier, Heber the Kenite, who was introduced to us to say this was his ally. And he flees to who he thinks is an ally. And who does he meet? He meets Heber's wife, Jael. Is she an Israelite? No. Does she know Yahweh? We don't know. Is the Lord going to use her to bring about his justice? Absolutely. You see, this is a tale, brothers and sisters, it's so good. It's, it's bookended by Two strong women, two mothers, we might say. Deborah describes herself as one. J.L. just acts like one. And you're saying, well, how does J.L. act like one? Well, she invites him to come in to lay down. She assures him that he'll be safe. She gives him a glass of milk. She covers him up. She literally tucks him in. The whole time, Sisera thinks he's safe as a young boy in his bed with his mother. And then, bam, he's dead. In a humiliating moment, before he knows what's happening, he's dead. And chapter 5, verses 24 through 27 exult in this humiliating moment. And we don't have time to read it. I was going to, but read chapter 5 this afternoon. Read verses 24 through 27 to hear of the glory of God's justice through J.L. God has done it again, and he's done it in the most surprising of ways. So what do we learn from this story? Well, first off, I think this is an encouragement concerning faith. This is an encouragement concerning our faith. God calls you, brothers and sisters, to believe, to believe him, to believe that his promises are true. But this passage reminds us that our weak faith doesn't stay his hand, And this isn't a call to complacency. No, we're called to trust and to obey. But it is an indictment against those who destructively tout that the measure of our faith is what determines God's actions. And some of you have been wounded by this. This false gospel that is out there. I read an article this week that one prominent author in 2000, who in 2018 wrote this, I have faith, but for I am a believer. I believe and I receive my healing. My faith makes me whole. If healing does not occur, the problem is a person's lack of faith. Whoa. And the article was about this year, that person backed down from that statement. And we pray that many more might follow suit and do the same for the scriptures proclaim that God God uses the strong, God uses the weak, and everything in between his purposes will not be thwarted. And so yes, believe, respond. With whatever mustard seed you can you can bring about. That's I think the first thing we learn. But then there is this issue of the role of women, and everyone wants to talk about the role of women when we come to the story of Deborah. And if I didn't talk about it this morning, it would kind of be the elephant in the room that was never mentioned, and so I'm going to talk about it for just a moment, though it's not the point of the passage. First of all, we need to be careful. This is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. In other words, the writer here is not outlining how all women ought to be for all time. We have the rest of the Scriptures that help inform us and guide us and create for us a fuller picture of the roles of women. Of course, we know, we understand that J.L.'s actions ought not to be repeated. We ought not to kill our enemies with tent pegs. But much is made of Deborah. And I think we overreact in both directions. On one side, Deborah's actions prove that men and women should have the same exact roles. Right? After all, nothing would have happened if it weren't for Deborah. That's one side. And then the other side argues that Deborah's leadership is part of this dark period that ought never be repeated. Women shouldn't ever leave. That was an anomaly. Forget about it. And I think both extremes are wrong. There's no doubt that Deborah is stepping into a gap left by the weakness of men. But she also knew her own gifting, right? She didn't bypass Barak. It was his job here to lead the fight. Not her job. She just let her strength and her faith be his. Now we could get all wrapped around this subject and we could be way down this rabbit trail. We don't have time. But let me just say this. I think Deborah helps us point to a biblical position in the church which is this. Women ought to be doing anything that unordained men ought to do in the church. You see, in the Old Testament, women led. They spoke God's Word. But never in the Old Testament were women priests. And so as we come to the New Testament, the teaching of the New Testament draws firm lines in the sand in regards to women's roles in the local church. And their roles that have nothing to do with Equality but rather God's design, and the way men and women complement one another. And Christians have too easily neglected the strength and the gifting of women in both society and in the church. As one author I read this week states, well, God shows his Old Testament people and us that men and women are equal, but not equivalent. And so in regards to Deborah, in regards to the work of the kingdom, this is an invitation. This is an encouragement for women to spread your wings and your strength for the good of the body, for the glory of the kingdom. And it's a challenge for men not only to receive that, but also to not passively depend upon the strength of our women but to encourage them as we lead them. Well, enough said about that. we got to wrap it up. Briefly, the second point this morning, and we'll close with this real briefly. We hardly talked about chapter five. I encourage you to read it later today. But I think as we look at these two chapters together, if chapter four is that God uses those with strong faith, weak faith, and unknown faith, chapter five, the point would be sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. We've talked recently in this church about the power of poetry, about the power of song, and so I won't belabor this point. I just want us to be reminded that we need songs in order to celebrate God's victories. Chapter 4 gives us the history. Chapter 5 reflects, helps us reflect, and helps us get into the story. Right? We see this in the Scripture. Praise is the regular response to God's redemptive acts. He parted the Red Sea. His people walked through it, and they sang Exodus 15. This little song, it's the only song that we find here. It's just further evidence. It's a further evidence for the case for singing. Our singing on the Lord's Day, our singing as the corporate people of God is not filler. It's not fluff. It's substance to be chewed on. It's not warm up to get the wiggles out so we can sit and get into the real work of the word. No, it's worship. And it's important. It's important because it teaches us, it stirs our hearts in a unique way, it helps us remember what we would otherwise forget, and it ultimately, our singing's not ultimately for us, right? It's directed to him. And since he likes it, we like it. Since he wants it, we do it. And he hears, and he loves to hear his people sing of his redemption. And so chapter five is just an opportunity for us to savor a song of redemption. There's a lot more we could unpack, but it's time to sing. It's time for us to respond as children of the Heavenly Father. How are we children? Because of the love shown to the weak and to the strong, because of the true deliverer, Jesus, because of the one who came and delivered his people, not through piercing others, but allowing himself to be pierced. Let's pray as we prepare to sing. Heavenly